Well, if you haven't already, join me at Matthew chapter 7. And that, that famous verse, at least it's part of our text, uh, that everyone uh, understands that uh, Christians are just to stop being so judgy. Didn't you hear Jesus said, don't judge? Well, yeah, he did. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Matthew 7, verses 1 to 6. To judge or not to judge, that is the question. Whenever Christians say that something is either right or wrong, or when they speak out against immoral or destructive behavior in another person or ministry, or when they call out a false teacher or teaching, or when they point out an errant or harmful viewpoint or worldview or ideology, they are, as I mentioned, alluded to, they are frequently told by the world, and now increasingly from other Christians, that they are not to judge. Folks will say, to shut you down and to shut you up, which works on most Christians, by the way. Jesus said not to judge, meaning that any behavior is right and that any attempt to deny that, that it is right, is wrong, <laughs> is itself wrong. In fact, in our present cultural environment, the only acknowledged and broadly agreed upon evil or sin seems to be that of claiming or stating or arguing that someone or something else is wrong. Judge not. Don't be so judgy. You're so judgy. And that's a big part of our text for today when Jesus did actually say, judge not. And we have to take that up. There's something there for us. But what did Jesus mean when he said those words, judge not that you be not judged? No criticism of anything? No judgments? No pushback? Well, in terms of the context, what Jesus teaches in our text for this morning is, of course, very connected to what came before it. The demand for this superior um, perfection, your Father's perfect, this demand for the superior righteousness of the kingdom of God in fulfillment of the Old Testament has called forth warnings against religious hypocrisy of all kinds, against worldliness, and called for the development of kingdom perspectives in all who claim to be sons and subjects of the Father and King. But there are other dangers Sin works trouble in other directions, too, for the ones who, by God's grace, come to Jesus Christ and live. There will be many temptations to judgmentalism. It is a problem of looking down on each other and dividing based on condemning attitudes instead of being characterized by the characteristics of the Father, like Father, like Son, remember? Grace, patience, love. And there will be a need to grow in wisdom, dependence upon the Holy Spirit, and growth in the knowledge of Christ and His Word. But in the absence of these, there will be shortages of discernment among the faithful. Shortages of discernment. Lack of wisdom and chronic inability to exercise proper judgment on a range of issues. And the church and families and individuals suffer. Jesus speaks to these issues now in Matthew chapter 7. Today, two main things to see, then we'll pray, then we'll read it, then we'll work through it under these two headers, which are these. The danger, number one, 
of being judgmental, the danger of being judgmental. We're not going to argue that away, but we want to understand it properly. Number two, the danger of not using proper judgment. The danger of not using proper judgment. So that's what we'll see in the text. Let's ask the Lord's blessing before we read it, and then we'll get going. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word. Where else would we turn? You have the words of eternal life, Peter said to Jesus, and we say to you about all your word, which is life, which points us to life in and through the word made flesh, Jesus the Christ. And so now as we look to your word, we we know that spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and so we ask for the help of your spirit to help us to see and to apply, to be convicted and encouraged. So we ask you to come and do these things and to guard us from error. Pray that you would be honored. And we trust in your promise that your word will do all that, it, that you purpose for it to do and that it, it will not return void. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Matthew 7, 1 to 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, When there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The holy and inerrant Word of God. Hmm. I, think, I think the time breakout of the two points does not reflect the breakdown in the text itself of the length. I think there's something instructive that there's five verses on the danger of being judgmental and one verse on the danger of not using proper judgment. You take that for what it's worth. I think it means something. But I'm not spending five times as much as what I'm saying, time on the first five verses as the sixth one. But Jesus does. I didn't time it out, I guess. I don't know in the points here. So point one, verses one to five, the danger of being judgmental. Well, so there is a real danger of being um, judgmental, whatever that is. Now, I guess it depends on who's defining that. Um, Making any judgment at all about anything, and you could be accused of being judgmental, but Uh, we can't just then throw that away and say, well, there's no such thing as being judgmental. There is clearly something that Jesus is warning His people about. There is a real danger of being judgmental in a certain way, rightly understood, or else Jesus wouldn't talk and teach this way. He teaches the the general principle first. So, So, if we could take just the first two verses under under sort of a subtitle, the principle, verses 1 and 2, the the principle. Look there again, the first two verses, the principle. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged with that that judgment. And with the measure you use, 
it will be measured to you. Well, the, the word for, for judge here has a pretty wide range of meaning. Um, judge, like uh, judicially, um, like in a law court, condemn, discern. That's pretty wide. Discerning isn't necessarily condemning. But the word judge here carries that whole range of making right judgment and condemning once you've made that judgment. Jesus isn't talking about law courts here, and He isn't teaching that His people aren't to to do any judging of of any kind whatsoever, ever, since um, much of the Sermon on the Mount calls Christians to make distinctions, to to discern often between this kind of behavior and that, between this kind of teaching and that, and to understand what is sin and what isn't sin, and so on and so forth. What are the characteristics of God the Father and what aren't? What, what a son of the Father is supposed to be like and what he's not supposed to be like? What, what subjects of the king are, are supposed to be like? What the king is like and what he's not like? Judgments. Discernment. We have to judge. Life is full of making judgments, and so the Christian life. We have to discern. And of course, Jesus himself in our verse 6 today, which is stealing from the second point, but in verse 6 today, Jesus goes on to speak of some people as dogs and pigs. And later he warns against false prophets in this chapter. This all requires judgment and condemnation. Elsewhere, Jesus even goes so clear as to demand that his people, quote, judge correctly, John 7, 24. So he can't be saying... In an absolute sense, in Matthew 7, 1, don't do any judging. Judge correctly, John 7, 24. So it's not only that some kinds of judging are okay. It's like, judge not, but oh, I know you're going to have to do some judging, but man, I'd rather you not. It, it's not that some kinds of judging are just okay, But actually that for the Christian and for the church, some kinds of judging are required and even mandated. You must be able to discern false teaching. You must be able to discern false teachers. And you must put him out. You must discern and condemn What Jesus is demanding and commanding here is for his disciples, the sons and subjects, not to be sinfully judgmental. What is called being censorious, which is not a word I use in normal conversation. That is uh, overly critical, Um, being fault finders as almost a profession, professional error and sin hunters. Don't do that. While still understanding that we are indeed to have settled and defined convictions, according to Scripture, while still understanding that we are indeed called to test everything, to test the spirits, while still understanding that we are indeed called to exhort one another and confront one another when we are in sin, and not just when we ourselves are perfected, but now in the church, and while still understanding that we are indeed called to discern error, to guard the doctrine and to cast out false teachers, all of this, yes, 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 even so, we are here also called by Jesus, even commanded to not be characterized by a spirit 
or an attitude of judgmentalism. Consider Paul's words in Romans 14. It's the same word there, the same judge verb there, occurring twice, the identical meaning, addressed to the same audience, that is, to Christians. It has a context. He's discussing uh, freedom and loving uh, the weaker brothers and all this stuff. But generally, I think the principle applies. I think we can see the same principle working here. It goes like this, Romans 14, quote, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? Well, that, that, that helps explain it, the judging. Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, Paul goes on, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. That can't possibly mean don't call out sin, don't confront sin, don't confront false teaching, can it? You could do the same with Paul and show that he doesn't mean that. Just as with Jesus doesn't mean that in Matthew 7.1. Paul concludes, instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Well, Paul gets all that from Jesus himself. What Jesus is teaching in our text, Matthew 7, then, again, is that we are not to have a fault-finding spirit towards our brothers and sisters. We're not to have or develop a readiness, a quickness to blame others and, and condemn them for small offenses or, or matters of indifference or matters of preference. A habit of, we're not to have a, a habit of rushing to judgment about them. A disposition. We're not to have a disposition of, to magnify their errors to magnify their weaknesses, to assume the worst. We're not to do that. We're not to be this way to one another. And more broadly, true Christians are not to be characterized by these things in any way, at any time, inside or outside the church. What is fundamentally at stake, I think, then, is the attitude, the spirit, wiring, disposition. And, and verse 2 likely just means that the measure we use on others will be the measure God Himself will use on us. I think that's fairly easy to see that. In other words, how will we fare when the same standard is applied to us? Paul's version, we all have to stand before God. You're not that person's judge. How will we fare when the same standard is applied to us? Do we really want the standard of God's harsh justice that is, that is cutting true justice and not His mercy? Do you want God's justice right now? Like you're kind of bringing in a, in a Javert kind of way. Les Mis. <laughs> unrelenting, unmerciful justice. Of course, God's justice is pure and right and good, but yours isn't. Do you want God's justice and not His mercy to be applied to ourselves in the way we are prone to apply to others? Because an ongoing, unrelenting, unrepentant, judgmental attitude and spirit and disposition will prove that we have an unbroken spirit. Think the Beatitudes now. We have an unbroken spirit and therefore cannot possibly be a subject of the King and Son of God, the Father. That is, we aren't in fact saved. 
if our hearts are that wicked. Not like father, like son. Then, the words of Jesus to the Pharisees comes to mind. You are of your father, the devil. We'll see next in the example which follows now, verses 3 to 5, that that speck of sawdust in the brother's eye does in fact need to be called out and removed. But what has to happen first in the one who would dare to call out and remove a speck? So this is the second part of the first point. First was the the principle, wasn't it? Now we have an eye-opening example, an eye-opening, ha-ha, example, verses 3 to 5. Let's read those verses again, 3, 4, 5. This is also very familiar. Why do you see, Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? That is to say, I'm not stopping in all these verses, just this one point. That is to say, we have no right to first be concerned about the sins of others. We have no right to first be concerned about the sins of others. Going on, verse 4. We'll walk through this. I just had to stop there. Verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus says, verse 5, first take the log out of your own eye. First take the log out of your own eye. But he doesn't stop there. And then you will see clearly to make a proper judgment. Take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, it is a ridiculous picture, right? He's intentionally doing that, this silly picture, to make the point. The word translated speck is a word for, uh, that the Greeks used for what you would imagine, a speck of sawdust or something like that. And the word log or beam referred to a huge wooden rafter or log, most likely a quite a bit, fair bit bigger than the two-by-four that's often referenced. You guys walking around with a two-by. Actually, it's bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. There was not refined wood like that. This is a huge wooden rafter or a log. A person walking around with a big wooden log sticking out of his eye, somehow unaware of it, though others aren't necessarily unaware of it. It's a big log. And coming up alongside another person and pointing a brother and pointing out a barely visible speck of sawdust in their eye. You know, you got a little something in your eye there. It's ridiculous. Oh, I've got something in my eye. But that's the picture painted here. Hypocrisy. And if we're honest, we know that happens all the time. We know we do it all the time. There's a big example, you know, the the, the easy one in the Bible. In 2 Samuel 12, King David steals another man's wife, remember? Despite his large harem, he lusts after this particular woman, seduces her, later discovers that she has become pregnant by him. Her husband is absent at the military front fighting David's wars. And so David arranges to have him killed. The king is now guilty of both adultery and murder. The prophet Nathan 
has to confront him. He enters the royal court, but instead of confronting his king outright, straight away, he tells him a story. He tells a parable, a short story about a poor farmer whose one little lamb has been stolen by a rich, powerful neighbor with a large flock of his own. Hearing the story, David is angry on behalf of the little farmer with the one lamb stolen. David's livid even. Perhaps some of the force of his wrath arises from his own guilt that he's suppressing, hiding. Whatever the case, in seething indignation and quite unaware of any irony, in this moment he asks who this wicked farmer is who would do such a thing. Here's David with it. Nathan replies, You are the man. You did that. Somehow, King David, incredibly blind, had been unaware of this huge log in his own eye or had suppressed it as he fumed over the speck of sawdust in the rich farmer's eye. And it's so easy to imitate David's conduct in one way or another. Sometimes we accomplish this by focusing on certain public sins which others are prone to commit and denouncing those sins with gusto while remaining disturbingly oblivious to the sins to which we ourselves are especially attracted. Or we can prefer to focus on big societal and cultural problems of which others partake or about which we go on crusade while neglecting our own sins or even our own capitulation to or participation in those bigger, broader societal sins. We ourselves are doing them too, but in private. Or we might so focus on doctrinal errors in others that we fail to humble ourselves under those very doctrines leading to repentance and to extending grace and forgiveness and love and patience to others as they grow, even in their immaturity or in-processedness. Those are just a few big ways. And so we must never lose sight of the stress in Matthew 7, 1 to 5, on attitudes. What kind of spirit is to characterize the believer, especially towards their brothers and sisters in Christ? We think of the word love, and we think of the words of Paul and Peter. 1 Corinthians 13, effectively describing Jesus as well as what is to be the disposition of the sons and subjects. You know this. I preached a, a wedding message on this once, twice now, making this same point. This is describing Jesus and the, and the life of the Christian. It's supposed to. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And, and then Peter, First Peter 4, he writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. 
So we ask again then, what, what is to characterize the disposition of the sons and subjects of God towards one another and generally? Well, I don't know about you, but the more I reflect on this, the less I want to talk about it, partly because there is so much conviction on being judgmental, on specks and logs. And the more we think on this, the more I find I am exposed and confronted by my own sin. You? May God grant me and us repentance in these areas and growth. May God grant me grace to practice what I preach. And may He grant us all to practice what we see in His Word. Now, one more thing before we move to the second point and verse 6. I forgot to emphasize one thing, which will also help move us on to verse 6. Note that in verse 5, the speck is still to be removed. People always miss that for some reason. And the speck is still to be removed, maybe even by the person who had just recently had a big giant log in his own eye. He's not disqualified from it. He's told to do something first. And then, look, verse 5, you hypocrite, first take that log out of your own eye. Repent. And then you, the one who just had a log in his own eye but has dealt now with the Lord in repentance, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, no doubt with gentleness. Now, with gentleness, having repented, having seen his own fault and need of Christ, perhaps greater need than the one with the speck. But I, I can still help you with your speck. Maybe now, actually, where before I couldn't. It would have been a person fashioning themselves as a surgeon but coming with the chainsaw. But now you have a humble surgeon with a scalpel and a steady hand. And so having gained the ability to see clearly, having been humbled and having repented now, now such a person can help remove the speck from his brother's or sister's eye. In fact, he's called to here in this text. He's still called to. This was never about not judging at all, was it? This was never about not judging at all, was it? Can't make it about that. Can't make this about never confronting wrongs and sins. This is decidedly about confronting wrongs and sins. But first, it is paramount that the saved confronter first deal with his or her own sin. We are not authorized to first worry about other people's sins before our own. First, Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye, and then as a broken, humble, contrite saint, you are called to confront, to exhort, and to care for your brother or sister and their present sin. Go win them back. Judge rightly. The second point, then, the of two today, and just verse 6, the danger of not using proper judgment. The danger of not using proper judgment, verse 6, or the danger of being undiscerning. 
or the danger of being undiscriminating. This is the opposite danger, that we won't speak when it's time to speak, that we won't confront when it's time to confront, that we won't rebuke and correct and even remove when it's time to rebuke and correct and even remove. It's easier to see how this new danger arises, it seems to me, because we are so non-confrontational. I am too. Who likes doing that? Let's all just pretend we're fine. And we are cowardly. And we allow Satan to condemn us and shut us up because of our sin. Who am I to go call out that sin? I have my own problems and they should be calling me out. And so because we're non-confrontational, because we're cowardly and because we're coward in our sin, the accusations from Satan in the flesh, we stay silent. We stay silent. We're argued into silence in other ways too. That is to say, the Christian has been told to love his neighbor as himself and to love his enemies. She has just been told never to adopt a judgmental attitude or mentality. As a result, aided by self and Satan, the Christian is in chronic danger of becoming wishy-washy, of refusing legitimate distinctions between truth and error, good and evil, because, after all, who am I to judge? Won't God sort all this out? Don't be so negative. I'll just sit back and maintain this silent posture of love? Is that what you're doing? Is that what you think you're doing? And so, after warning us against judgmentalism, Jesus warns against being undiscriminating, of not using proper judgment when it's time to use proper judgment, when it's time to be discerning, full of wisdom and courage to speak and act in defense of the truth and in defense of the brothers. They're going towards a cliff, brothers and sisters, and you won't say anything? That's love, you say? Any real shepherd knows that's not what love is. Love is rescuing the sheep heading for the cliff. He says it this way, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy or sacred. What is sacred in, in Matthew's gospel? It's the gospel of the kingdom, the message, the good news about Jesus Christ for sinners. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So, the dogs in view here are, of course, not um, cuddly pets with wagging tails and friendly wet noses. Ooh, it's so wet, isn't that cute? That's, if you're close to the, dog of, the, t- the nose of one of these dogs, you, you're not going to be thinking cute at all. You're going to need uh, plastic surgery if you're alive at all. They are semi-wild hounds that roam the streets and hills, tongues hanging from their mouths and burrs clinging to their filthy bodies, their overgrown coats as they forage for food in packs. And the domestic pig in the days of ancient Israel, that's an abomination to the Jew, but most probably derived from the European wild boar, I'm telling you from a commentary, because you needed to know where it descended from to understand. No, you didn't. But these kinds of pigs capable of terrible violence, I, I think people in the South understand this better 
better than us. We don't, we don't really have this kind of wild boar around here, do we? I don't think. But in the south they do. They hunt them. The two animals together serve as a model of people who are savage, vicious, animalistic, and even totally against the things of God and His people. And these two are brought together again in 2 Peter 2.22 in an equally negative context where Peter writes, of them, certain people he's talking about, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. Now back to that text. Jesus sketches a picture then of a man holding a bag of precious pearls, confronting a pack of these vicious hounds and some wild pigs. As the animals look at him, he takes out these pearls and sprinkles them on the street, thinking they are about to gulp some very attractive-looking bits of food. They pounce on the pearls, but obviously swift disillusionment sets in. The pearls are too hard to chew on. They're not appetizing. They're not food at all. What are you doing? And now enraged, the wild animals spit out the pearls, turn on the man, and tear him to pieces. That's what happened. That's the story Jesus is telling there. Jesus is here commanding His people to be discerning. Not to share the richest parts of spiritual truth with persons who are persistently vicious, irresponsible, hateful, and unappreciative. Just as the pearls were unappreciated by the savage animals but only enraged them and made them dangerous, so also many of the riches of God's revelation are unappreciated by many people. And painful as it is to see it, these rich truths may only serve to enrage them. This requires much discernment and wisdom and even courage and clarity if mostly applied in situations in which we are already engaged in evangelism and missions and only in process do we find ourselves in danger or in the presence of hatred and even violence. This command and principle can never be a cover for cowardice and disobedience. But in the New Testament, there are several examples of this principle in action. In Matthew 15, Jesus, speaking of certain Pharisees, tells His disciples, leave, leave them. They are blind guides. If, if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Let them alone. And according to Acts 18, Paul abandons his ministry to the Jews in Corinth because they viciously oppose him and become abusive. He turns to the Gentiles instead. And he recommends a similar course to Titus concerning even divisive people in the church. Quote, "...warn a divisive person once." And then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And it's no accident, by the way, that Jesus speaks of pearls and not gravel. The man in this scenario is in possession of pearls, great wealth. So interpreting the metaphor, we learn that the, the gospel of the kingdom... The good news of Jesus Christ, with all of history and revelation pointing toward it, really is a priceless treasure. It is wonderful beyond words. All physical wealth pales in significance beside it. And because this is God's world, nothing is more important to us, a sinner, sinners, than to have my sins, our sins, forgiven and to be accepted by Him. And nothing is more wonderful than the way that God has accomplished this by sending His Son to die in my place, in our place, for all 
who believe and then to rise in victory. God has graciously given to humans, both in human language, the Bible, and in a human person, Jesus, the God-man, true and sure revelation of himself, pearls of great price. And nothing, absolutely nothing, is richer or more important or of more consequence than that. So, how do we apply that? Here's J.C. Ryle, a long time ago, quote, this verse teaches This verse teaches us the importance of exercising discretion over the people we speak to about religion. Everything is beautiful in its place and season. Our zeal passion is to be tempered by a prudent consideration of times, places, and persons. Proverbs 9.8, Do not rebuke a mocker, says Solomon, or he will hate you. It is not... Everybody to whom it is wise to open our minds on spiritual matters. There are many who, from violent tempers or openly profligate habits, are utterly incapable of valuing the things of the gospel. They will even fly into a passion and run into greater excesses of sin or throw the Bible across your office if we try to do good and to their souls." To name the name of Christ to such people is truly to throw your pearls to pigs. It does not do them good, but harm. It rouses all their corruption and makes them angry. In short, they are like the Jews at Corinth, or like Nabal, about whom it is written that he was such a wicked man that no one could even talk to him, 1 Samuel 25. Ryle concludes, The lesson before us is one which is particularly difficult to use properly. The right application of it needs great wisdom. We are, most of us, far far more likely to err on the side of over-caution than of over-zeal, over-passion. We are generally far more disposed to remember the time to be silent than the time to speak. Ecclesiastes 3. It is a lesson, however, which ought to stir up a spirit of self-inquiry in all our hearts, we may well fear that we have often erred in this matter. End quote. The fact that Christians ought not throw their pearls to dogs and pigs does not give them a license to be nasty in return, vindictive in return, that is, to respond in kind, still less to ignore all else that Jesus has taught and commanded us. And further, there is no justification in this verse for neglecting all verbal witness. Well, I guess I sh- just, I'm not going to share the gospel at all. Now, I mean, I don't, but I, I'm definitely not going to now. No, 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 no. There is no justification in this verse for neglecting all verbal witness on the grounds that there are only dogs and pigs out there. No. Don't ever use the words of Jesus on one matter or on one side of the coin to justify disobedience to his words on another matter or on the other side of the coin. On this issue, don't forget that most who come to the Lord as adults begin with questions and maybe even with much opposition, maybe with mocking. We could go even further and remember Paul and his violent opposition to Christ's church. You might say, well, then Jesus had to go do that one. Yeah, well, maybe that, maybe that serves both points then, doesn't it? Be careful. Be careful. Don't throw your pearls before dogs and swines, but take the gospel to the ends of the earth anyway and be discerning. There are many situations then in all wisdom and discernment and courage in which Christians need to persist in their witness and be patient with their proclaiming and defending of God's truth. But be wise. 
Be wise and be patient. The harvest will come in due time if we do not grow faint or turn coward or grow lazy. To know when to continue or when to turn away. To know. Be much in prayer. Be much in the Word. Be aiming to walk in the light and to walk by the Spirit and be much in counsel with the brothers and sisters in your church. Right, so we are to be discerning in these things, but aiming to give ear also to these words of Jesus. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. We are to be careful in our handling of the truths of biblical revelation of, of, of the gospel itself, for these are holy things and must not be thrown around indiscriminately to wicked people while also spreading the seed indiscriminately still. How do you figure that out? Well, just as I said, with much prayer, discernment, wisdom, in counsel with the brothers and sisters, thoughtfully, carefully, responsibly, strategically. So, do not be judgmental was the first one, wasn't it? There is a danger in being sinfully judgmental. May the Lord give us a spirit of heart, that attitude, that disposition as sons and daughters and subjects that reflects the Father and the King. But use your judgment, Christians. Be discerning. There is a danger also in not using proper judgment and not being discerning. There is a time to be silent. And there is a time to speak. May the Lord grant clarity and courage to know when to confront, when to exhort, when to call out sin and error, when to proclaim the gospel, and when to be silent. And all with a view to honoring the Lord and the commands of Christ. Because He said, didn't He? If you love me, You'll do what I said. All with a view to glorifying God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. Help us to apply it. It's clear to us that it requires a dependence upon Your Spirit to not just understand, but understand this deeply, but, but to know how to apply it in, in real time. Give us courage Wisdom, love, patience, a desire to see people become Christians and, and to grow as Christians and all that that requires. That we would desire to be means that you use to awaken people from the dead and, and bring them all the way home. But help us to understand the dangers in the world. Help us to understand when to shake the dust off of our feet and to turn, as it were, from one violent group to another to see where the wind is blowing and engage there. Give us discernment. Help us, that is to say, to judge. And Father, help us not to be judgmental. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.